0: I'm Janet Jacobson, I'm the director of the Barnard Center for Research on Women, and I want to welcome you to this, the first of our spring events uh, uh, in the BCRW programming, and um, our event this evening is called Feminism and Beyond, Young Feminists Take On Activism and Organizing, and this is actually part of a series that we've been doing over the entire time I've been director here called Young Feminists Take On, uh, various topics, and um, we're very happy to have this particular a panel of what I would say is truly illustrious young women uh, with us this evening. Now one of the pleasures of this evening for me is introducing to you um, tonight's moderator, who is Dina Tyson, who is a senior um, here at uh, Barnard College majoring in Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies, and who has been, um, and she also uh, participates in the Interdisciplinary Concentration on Race and Ethnicity. And she has worked as a research assistant at BCRW for the past two years. I really like my job, and um, there's some crazy video of me from the 40th anniversary saying, I love my job, but one of the things I love about it is working with the Barnard students who are truly extraordinary, and Dina is one of those people. So I'm very proud and happy to be able to um, have her as our moderator this evening. In addition to the work she does at BCRW and her scholarly activities, she's um, a coordinator of Barnard and Columbia's chapter of Um, Take Back the Night, the anti-sexual violence group, and she's a development intern um, on uh, documentary cinema and education in Harlem. So um, this is her first time moderating. You all be nice to her, Dina Tyson.
1: Thank you, Professor Jacobson. That was really kind. Um, I also want to begin by thanking the Barnard Center for Research on Women for hosting what I think is a really important panel. Um, and clearly, all of you do, too, because look how <laughs> full this room is. Um, I want to also thank Ann Jonas, who I know worked really hard to put this together, to come up with a cool title for the event, so um, and for inviting me to be a part of it. It's, a really tremendous honor to be on this stage with you, four women, because you guys are pretty impressive yourselves. So, um, before I start, I just um, wanted to mention that I think the the BCRW the past two years has been uh, a really great place to work uh, because I really appreciate how they've given uh, young activists these forums to have these important conversations and to engage the community with it. Um, And as Professor Jacobson mentioned, this is part of a longer, decades-long conversation we've already been having about young activists. Um, So without further ado, um, I'm going to introduce these four ladies. And then each panelist will give a brief presentation. And then we'll open it up for a discussion. So to my right, your left, is Dior Vargas. um, She organized the first Feminist General Assembly in New York City with Women Occupying Wall Street, and now organizes with an Occupy Affinity group called FemForce. She is a board member at the Third Wave Foundation and a member of National Women's Liberation. Dior is an alumna of Smith College and currently works full time as an e-book production assistant manager at Random House. She's interned for the Feminist Press and for Gloria Feld, a former CEO and president of Planned Parenthood Federation of America. She's a native New Yorker and currently lives in Brooklyn. And then to her right is Sydney Mosley, an artist activist who is interested in creative work that is both artistically sound and socially aware. A 2007 alumna of Barnard College, Sydney is a dancer, choreographer, and teacher whose creative and research interests lie at the intersections of modern dance, movement in the African diaspora, spirituality, feminism, and literature. As the 2011-2012 BCRW Alumni Fellow, Sydney produced and developed the Window Sex Project, a model for dance activism that uses movement to respond to the sexual harassment of women in public places. Sydney performs modern dance professionally, currently with a dance company in Spirit. Um, next is Julie Zeilinger. Um, she is the founder and editor of The F Bomb, a feminist blog and community for teens and young adults who care about their rights and want to be heard. Originally from Pepper Pike, Ohio, Julie is now a sophomore at Barnard. She has been named one of the eight most influential bloggers under the age of 21 by Women's Day Magazine one of more magazines, New Feminists You Need to Know, one of the Times' 40 bloggers who really count, and one of the Plain Dealer's Most Interesting People of 2011. Mm-hmm. She, mm-hmm. kind of lame, right? Mm-hmm. She has contributed to the Huffington Post, Feminist.com, Skirt Magazine, and the Cleveland Jewish News, among other publications. Julie's new book, A Little Left Up, Why Feminism is Not a Dirty Word, was released in May 2012 by Seal Press. So. <laughs> That's just the surface of it. If you you guys want to go down the line and introduce more of what you do, Uh, sure. Um,
2: Sorry, a little nervous. (laughs) Um, Okay, well, uh, first, I'd like to thank everyone at the Barnard Center for Research on Women for inviting me to take part in this important discussion. My name is Dior Vargas, and I'm 25 years old. I identify as a queer feminist Latina. I received my undergraduate degree in the study of women and gender from Smith College in 2009. I received my master's degree from pub- in publishing from Pace University in 2011. I grew up in Spanish Harlem with a single mother and older sister. Before my mother was a single parent living paycheck to paycheck, my mother, my sister, and I were victims of domestic violence. While many would call this a broken home, I call it a learning experience which taught me to survive the most difficult of situations and appreciate all the good things I do have. Education was of the utmost importance in my household. My grandmother, who helped raise me, told me that my education could never be taken away from me, and I carry her lessons with me to this day. After graduating from Smith and during my years of study at Pace, I was an editorial and development intern for the Feminist Press. I also interned for Gloria Felt, former CEO and president of Plant and Parenthood, Federation of America, on publicizing her most recent book, No Excuses. In 2012, I joined Women Occupying Wall Street, a caucus of the Occupy movement in New York. I organized the first Feminist General Assembly in May, where we had consciousness raising, breakout groups, and report backs. We organized three additional assemblies, the final one of which was under my direction. It was focused on the issues most pertinent to people of color, such as immigration, incarceration, and discrimination. I was responsible for outreach, publicity, and supervision. I was involved in Occupy the Stage, which was created by Occupy Wall Street and the Forum Project. We worked on a dialogic performance series using Forum Theater to discuss the issues of oppression that are important to the Occupy movement. Women women Occupying Wall Street is no longer a working group, and now the remaining organizers are part of an Occupy Affinity group called FemForce. We are currently collaborating with the National Women's Liberation Group, of which I am also a member. I am part of the Women of Color Caucus within NWO. Last week, on the 40th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, we held a speak out for unrestricted access to the morning-after pill. Another organizer and I shared testimonies regarding our experiences with emergency contraception. We also perform street theater in order to demonstrate the restrictions women have to contend with to access the morning-after pill. I became a board member of the Third Way Foundation in September 2012. I am on the External Relations Committee, the Program Committee, and the Executive Director Search Committee. With this new added responsibility, I have been given an invaluable opportunity to gain a better understanding of board membership and also strengthen my leadership skills. Currently, I'm also undergoing board member training in a program from the Stonewall Community Foundation called Out in Front New York. When I'm not working on my activism, I'm a full-time employee at Random House Publishing, where I'm an e-book production assistant manager. I believe that one of the major challenges for today's feminist movements is negative association that many women of color have towards feminism due to the homogenous history of the women's movement. For women of color, feminism has often been viewed as a a movement by and for white women of privilege. And it is important to me, as a Latina, that feminism be viewed as welcoming to a wider spectrum of individuals. I believe that organizing today is different from previous generations, and that unprecedented access to the internet and social media has allowed both activists and their opponents to share their views more readily. Young women and their allies around the world can connect with one another in a way that was not possible just one generation ago. And this makes the tools of organizing, such as petitioning and the dissemination of information, much easier to put to use. However, those who do not have our best interests in mind have access to the same tools, all of which makes our activism so vital. Once again, I want to to thank the Barnard Center for Research on Women for giving me this opportunity to share with you my work and my passion for feminist activism And I hope tonight's discussion will be fun, informative, and energizing. Thank you.
3: Okay, I'll take it away. Um, Again, my name is Sydney Mosley, and. The fact that you said how old you were, I was like, oh, it's young feminist. I'm 27. Um, So (laughs) just so you know, you know, maybe a little bit about my life experience from that number. Um, I have to be honest um, that until maybe two years ago, I wouldn't have identified myself specifically as feminist or as an activist. um, And it wasn't for any political reason. Um, They just weren't roles that I sought to claim. Um, But, you know, if you think about it, do I believe in fighting cultural systems of oppression that impede sometimes basic human rights? Once I learned what that meant, yes. (laughs) Do I believe in taking a stand and acting on perceived injustices? Absolutely. Am I someone who champions choices, possibilities, freedoms, and achievements for all, but particularly for women? I always have been. It's really within the work that I do the roles that I do claim, dancer, choreographer, educator, that I've come to understand myself as both a feminist and an activist. My brand of feminist activism comes directly from my lived experiences, the audacity of my character, and my need to dance. Quite simply, I know that I have to work for the change that I need to live the life I deserve to live. My world of activism is one of intersections of many ideas and mediums. It is a world of asking questions and then building projects to address those things. In 2011, I embarked on an ambitious dance work called The the Window Sex Project. It was a dance theater work that responded to the sexual harassment of women in public spaces. The Window Sex Project was born from frustration with daily instances of gender-based street (laughs) harassment. Just yesterday, while riding to work on the Bronx, on a north Bronx-bound D train, a man was walking down the aisle. And he's soliciting money. And he leans over, particularly to me, holding up the handlebar, holding onto the handlebar. And he just comes up to me and he's like, hey, how you doing, baby, and walks away. But before I even had a chance to like realize what was happening, he was already gone onto the next car. And it's crazy that even after two years of doing this work, I still feel smaller, I feel picked at, and I feel inhuman in some ways when these things happen every single day. As an artist, I created a process to use dance to respond to this. I needed to reclaim my body and do some consciousness raising at the same time. When I began organizing dance workshops around this issue, suddenly I was doing activist work. In these workshops, I wanted to explore how does movement play into building and rebuilding self-image? Self-image being defined as self-esteem, confidence, personal joy, and pleasure. I also wanted to know how movement could be used to build relationships with others. How could I build community amongst the people in my own neighborhood around this issue? Then I wanted to know, how can we parlay these things into performance, which raises the consciousness of all the people in my community? How can using the body and performance be a mode of speaking up, reclaiming agency, exercising control over my body, and projecting who I am as how I want to be seen and how I want to be treated. And then, to think even more broadly, in producing a passion project with very real and relevant implications, how do I advocate for myself as an artist and the other artist with whom I collaborate? Another part of my advocacy work is being an advocate for dance artists. I sit on a committee called the Dance NYC Junior Committee, and it is an advisory board that represents individuals ages 21 to 35 who work in the dance field what I discovered every time I did a window sex project related talk, workshop, or performance is that in addition to raising awareness and facilitating invaluable conversations around street harassment, I was also expanding the understanding of dance for those who didn't consider themselves dancers and also for those who didn't consider themselves to be patrons of the art form. As a young artist, this advocacy work is crucial and directly related to me making and, and maintaining a livelihood in the dance field. Again, I am an activist due to the truth of my situation. In 2010, the Dance NYC Junior Committee, it conducted a survey, a census survey of dance earnings amongst individuals ages 21 to 35 there were about 1,200 respondents, and 84% of those respondents were women. And what they found was that for dance artists, mostly choreographers and performers, that their earnings plateaued at about $25,000 even after working in the field for 15 years. Did you hear that? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Plateaued at $25,000 as an artist after 15 years in the field. So this is very important to me. Um, at the same time that I am doing this advocacy work around an issue of just you know, my body and being able to move around freely in public space, I'm also doing the work of advocating for myself as a person who just wants to be able to eat off of the work that she does that is so important. <sighs> I get emotional about these things because they are, they are so personal. As I continue to create and produce and perform, I'm really trying to consciously build this business model, which does not exploit the talents of those whom, with whom I work, but also compensates them in beneficial ways, both financially and if I can't give them the money that they deserve, then give them the resources that they need. Dancers continue to train years and years after they've already entered the workforce. Can I give them class? Can I connect them to, can I connect them to people? Can I get them a job that does pay? I, I'm always thinking about those things. I've found that amongst my peers, many of whom are women of color working in the performing arts, that many are not self-proclaimed feminist activisms, but the work that they do absolutely is. We find common ground in speaking up when it is important and when it is personal, and that is where I come from as an activist.
4: and a blogger for a few years now, it took me much longer to finally consider myself an activist. And even in preparing for this, my immediate reaction was, I'm just a blogger, I'm not an activist. An activist is someone who gets out there and does things and makes change. And blogging is about a community. It's about building together and learning from each other. And you know, I had to check myself and realize that is activism. Um, So I just wanted to briefly share three of the major ways that I believe that blogging really lends itself well to feminist activism. The first way is that blogging really allows young women to establish a voice, and I will be talking specifically in terms of feminist blogging. Um, I've always said that the most feminist aspect of the F-bomb has always been in the act of writing itself, even more so than any of the topics that we cover, although we do cover a wide array of feminist topics. I believe that blogging encourages young women to express themselves on an emotional and intellectual level in a society that actively encourages us to do the opposite, that <coughs> constantly suppresses us and asks us not to identify our own voices. Um, blogging allows us to become comfortable with developing our own opinions and ideas. Um, I actually recently just read an interview in the New York Times that Nicholas Kristoff did with Sheryl Sandberg, who's the CFO of Facebook, and one of the main things she said about women in the workforce was that one of the major barriers to advancement is that, in her experience, she saw women not really fully taking their seat at the table, Mm -hmm. that they would show up to meetings and, in their own work, more readily allow others to take credit for their work or not bring their own ideas to the table again, and I believe that blogging as well as other forms of feminist activism really address that issue head on. They really encourage young women to establish that voice and to get comfortable publicly standing by the things that they believe. And additionally, I think it gives us the opportunity to push back against a culture that constantly tries to silence us in all realms of our lives. I also believe that feminist blogging helps foster a community because while it is important to establish our own voices and to get comfortable standing by that, I think especially young women are constantly told to compete with each other and to tear each other down and the feminist blogging community really encourages us to support our peers opinions mm-hmm. to try to add to them and be constructive with each other rather than destructive and it's i can speak from personal experience that it's no secret that feminism can often be a dirty word and especially amongst high school students And I know for me personally, finding a community of like-minded peers on the internet who weren't afraid to embrace this term really bolstered a lot of my own self-confidence and allowed me to translate that work on the internet into my own real life and helped me feel comfortable with that identity. I also believe that blogging allows for the democratization of the feminist movement, which clearly benefits feminist activism. Um, I believe it addresses historical shortcomings of the feminist movement in terms of accessibility to leadership and diversity and inclusivity. Ideally, feminist blogging should be a meritocracy. Anyone who wants to write can write, and ideally they should all be able to be heard. There is no hierarchy in the internet necessarily. Of course, that being said, I think in reality, there definitely are bloggers that tend to get more attention than others. But even just in the basic system of blogging, You can speak back to an author of a post by adding your own comment. You can try to educate them about specific issues of diversity, especially, I've seen happen a lot. And I think it's really revolutionizing the movement in that way. Um, In terms of criticisms that I've faced in terms of blogging, um, I've heard, especially from older feminists, that they see feminist blogging as not letting itself well to the visibility of young feminist activists, and that we need more on-the-ground activism. Mm-hmm. And I do want to address that, just because I think that is a legitimate claim. I think that we do need more on-the-ground activism. Also, I don't want to ignore the fact that on-the-ground activism is happening. I definitely believe it is. But I would also question this question of visibility. I think we're definitely moving into a digital era in which we get most of our news and information online, and that it actually, feminist blogging has the potential for a huge amount of visibility that we're able to organize in huge numbers that we couldn't parallel on the ground. And I think that that's definitely notable. But ultimately, I think that feminism for my generation is a living, breathing experience. It's something that's diffused into our daily lives, whether we choose to put a label on that or not. And I think that feminist blogging reflects this. And I think it's one of the best ways to see how young women in this day and age are defining themselves as feminists Mm -hmm. and allows them to reach out to others and see how they identify and to really learn from each other.
1: (laughs) The idea of feminist as an identity for those interested in gender justice or social justice you brought up some really important points, and I wanted to know if anyone else wanted to speak to that topic. But, you know, everyone seems to have a different relationship with the word, and I wanted to know what you as individuals, um, what your relationship to that word is, and what you think it sh- maybe should be for other people. Should it be anything for other people? Um, I think for me, I think that feminism certainly
3: encapsulates um, gender justice. And I think that that's something that I'm dealing with very much in my own work. Um, But I also have lately been on this feminism can really be broad in terms of a term and what that means to individual people. And that the more different people who identify as feminists, the broader we can look at what that is um, and identify what that is. Um, and to your earlier point, Dior, uh, when you were talking about women of color, and a lot of women of color who may or may not like the word feminism for various reasons, some justified, some you know I don't agree with, but my, my thing as of late really has been if there are more different individual voices who are speaking to a common, um, speaking to common goals, common values, common ideals, then we are diversifying and broadening what that, with the word feminism means.
4: Yeah. Um, excuse me. I also agree with that and I think that my generation specifically, our generation, does grapple a lot with the term feminist itself. And that debate is often framed in terms of young women not wanting to claim the stigma of the word and feeling repelled by it. But I think there's also a legitimate claim to having problems with the history of this movement and also not really either knowing how to define it or not knowing where we want to go with it. And I've seen a lot of those conversations emerge on the F-bomb where it's not just about the stigma. It's not just about wanting to be seen as ugly or something repulsive because that's what we've come to associate with feminism. It's really about considering what feminist activism in general means to us. And I think that we do see some historic exclusion, and we reject that. And also just in terms of our different methods, in terms of digital media and social media, we just view it differently. And I know personally it's something I am definitely still trying to figure out. I came to this movement very sure that I was going to call myself a feminist, and I was going to tinge everything I did. And the more I learned, the more I do realize that I think it is more about the work that you do and less about the label that you put on it. And that's something that I try to focus on in my own work is about feminist values and about the feminist ideals more so than really stressing about the label as much.
0: Mm
2: Um, I really have a close relationship to feminism, and uh, it really has been evolving for, for quite some time. I remember when I was at uh, Smith, I was going to major in women's studies, and then they changed the name to the Study of Women and Gender. So just showing that, it just shows that you know, the, the feminist movement is changing, and even though it has a lot of um, definitions and it means a lot of different things, um, it's really working towards... Um, Involving more people and not to be exclusionary, so I actually prefer that feminism more than one that's just more focused on women and their experiences. But something that's more about you know it, that's more about intersectionality because feminism is about intersectionality and race, class, gender, all those things.
1: So, speaking of identities that define us, um, we talked about the feminist part of this panel. Also, the other operative word here is youth, young. We are a young feminist panel right here, quote, unquote. So um, I was wondering, um, is there a need to distinguish the work of young feminists? Or does generation play a role in the work that each of you do?
4: I feel like um, I am often defined as a young feminist in my work. And I guess I haven't been as critical about it as I could have been just because I feel like I've had really Incredible mentors, often through blogging i 've often sought them out as well, um, but I think that within feminism, there tends to be forced divides in that sense, where, as you mentioned the wave um, model before, we tend to be separated into waves kind of forcibly we 're told that feminism of the '70s is nothing like feminism of today, that there was a third wave, and they were defined by zines, <laughs> excuse me, um, and that we can 't have these intergenerational conversations, but I think that they're really essential to have. And I also think that if we continue to have more of them, we'll find that we have much more in common than we do apart. I think that there are differences, as I have mentioned, including the tools that we use, such as social media. But I think, really, the essential beliefs of feminism and belief in equality has persisted throughout time.
3: I don't think there are generational differences within this movement than there are amongst any other. I mean, we just got finished talking about intersectionality. Um, and it just, it you know, age comes into, com- comes into play for that.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I just want to echo the sentiment that it is really important to work intergenerationally. And um, I mean, in terms of like, you could really learn from each other. Uh, and I mean, even with consciousness raising, people have been doing that since, you know, the 70s, the 60s, and it,
1: we're still doing it and it works. So one thing that's come up in a lot of what you've mentioned Um, in the work that you do and I know Jessica you brought up the point about access is social media and I know that's You know the hot button thing to talk about with activists Um, And I wanted each of you to maybe elaborate a little more on what your how social media plays into your activism or if it doesn't why not?
3: I'll start. Um, I mean, social media is a marketing tool. Social media, I am the Facebook generation. Like, I was here at Barnard in 2004 and Mark Zuckerberg made Facebook and then Columbia got it and was like, ooh, Facebook. And at first it was like the thing that everyone could get a date and then all of a sudden, like five years later, you're like, people, employers are looking you up and then you get fired from your job. (laughs) Like like that, you know, like I (laughs) witnessed it being this purely actual Social tool to connect with your friends, and like, oh, I haven't talked to them since the fifth grade, to like, now it's like this thing, and you have to be so aware of it, and you have to be careful, and you have to whatever. So, just wanted to say that. With regards to act, <laughs> to organizing, I mean, it is a useful tool. It's a very useful tool. And anytime I have anything ever, it's going on Twitter, it's going on Facebook, um, you know, I'm blogging about it, and those are, th- that's the medium of our generation. Um, and it, it is integrated um, as much in activist organizing as it is into anything else. Um, and I was having a conversation um, a couple of weeks ago with a friend, and we were talking about the importance for, because it is so prevalent and everyone's on it and everyone's using it, the importance that um, it be recognized. It is, you know, it's the grassroots tool. It's the thing from us. It's the the thing from the young generation. And I feel like, you know, at a lot of um, more, established organizations. It's like, oh, that Twitter thing, like find an intern who knows how to do that. (laughs) And it's like, no, but like, actually, this is something we use. And this is something that can really be valuable. And, you know, it's a job, you know, it's a full time job. I like manage people's Facebook pages and I should be paid for <laughs> doing that work because it takes so many hours and planning and all of this stuff. So I just wanted to put it out there um, that it is completely integrated into our into our culture and into our society and um, I don't think it is always given its due um, with regards to organizing.
4: Yeah, I'd also like to give completely agree with you, and I'd like to give a specific example of how I've really seen it help feminist activism specifically, and that's through um, generally hashtag campaigns or other really widespread campaigns in terms of generally targeting offensive ad campaigns or just corporations in general for some malicious practices. Um, one of my favorite ones actually is one that's run by an organization called Misrepresentation, which um, is an organization that works with young women um, and body image. Um, presentations in the media, and they have a hashtag campaign called Not Buying It. So essentially, periodically, they will start this hashtag campaign and they will either pick a corporation or ad campaign specifically or open it up to the entire Twitter audience to target something. And it's a really great way to let these corporations know, as women, as men who are also concerned that we're not okay with these really offensive ads that objectify women or, in many cases, chop off limbs of women in their ads, very offensive things. and I think. Mm-hmm. Um, In that way, social media is a great way to talk back, to really allow visibility between the consumer and corporations. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, and another specific example, something that I have noticed more specifically about Facebook um, in terms of young women that I don't think is talked about enough, is that it can also be another source of competition and comparison. Um, I bring this up, we recently had a post on the F-bomb from a young woman writing about how just being on Facebook in general has so negatively impacted her own body image. And just, I think there's this general culture perpetuated specifically by Facebook, but certainly by other social media means, that really encourages young women to compete with each other and um, sort of have this competition based on who's having the most fun, who can look the best in their photos. And I think we need to start more conversations about that phenomenon as well.
2: Mm -hmm. I mean, like organizations like Hollaback, they have, pictures, user submitted pictures of, pictures of uh, men who sexually harass women and it's like putting their face, you know, like just it's a visual representation of how we suffer through sexual harassment daily. And I think that without the internet we wouldn't be able to do things like that. And it just really changes the way that people are activists because it's a different, it's a different view.
3: One of the things I actually love about um, particularly Facebook and Twitter is the fact that it does reveal people's like deep-seated hatred for everyone and themselves. Um, but the reason why I love it is because out of those posts come the most amazing conversations. And I am just such a believer in, like, conversation talk it out like let's get it all out there and let's you know from that we can come to understandings we can come to compromises we can you know maybe our mind won't be changed today but you know new seeds and thoughts and ideas are now being planted in our minds and as horrible as it is because people say the craziest things on the internet and you all know this um, but I love that they feel comfortable enough all of a sudden there's I feel like before the Uh, social media was so prevalent, is such a prevalent and integrated part of our lives, you know, everyone wants to be very politically correct and you would never know what they truly thought about anything unless you were their best friend and you were talking behind closed doors. Now all of a sudden those closed door conversations are on the internet for better or for worse. And seriously, um, and you know, all of a sudden, I can't tell you how many Facebook comment debates I've had, but I'm so glad I had those conversations otherwise I feel like, you know, I wouldn't have learned something about a topic or the other person wouldn't. Yeah.
1: I just want to add to what Jessica was saying with being strategic and how you use social media and I think we also need to be strategic in how we consume social media, particularly in regards to the Coney 2012 situation last year and how that just spread so wide without critical consumption of what people were social media active. Activisting about mm-hmm. made up a word there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would like to actually open up the floor to the audience. If you guys have questions, just raise your hand and uh, BCRW research assistant will have a microphone for you. How can we encourage men to get involved in feminist activist projects?
3: Um, I can definitely speak to that. Um, it's a very interesting question. So going back to um, the example of the Window Sex Project, that work happened in two parts. It happened in community workshops, which were specifically by, with, and for women, and then there's the performance piece, which is, you know, anybody and everybody should be there. Um, and I specifically wanted the workshop piece of that to be a safe space for women to talk about their stories and then to work on themselves. Um, and I felt that you were talking about healthy relationships earlier um, before you can go and have a conversation with somebody else you got to have yourself together and that's what the workshops were about then the performance piece of that was inviting men into the conversation and it was i very strategically did that so and we did, the, we did the full show twice. We did it once here on Barnard's campus, and I think that audience was certainly sort of, it was a women's, you know, feminist, pro, you know, everything that Barnard stands for audience, which was wonderful. Previous to that, we had another show, which was in Harlem um, on 123rd and 2nd Ave. And I invited not only feminist organizations and not only Barnard people, but I went to, I went around to every organization in the community. I went to the Harlem Arts Alliance. I went to, um, I specifically went to organizations for men that were activist organizations, so men can stop rape and all of those types of organizations. I was calling all of my guy friends, get your guys here, okay? You know, All of the bankers and the lawyers, and come, it'll be a good time. I have wine, I have food, and it was great. We had the best talk-back conversation, and this is not just me as the facilitator saying that. Every single person that was in that room, it was 150 people, said that was the best conversation that I've ever had, and it was heated but it was also productive after that my dad came up to me who you know is supportive because he's my dad but had no idea really what I had been working on this whole time and he goes you know I never even thought about how you might feel when that happens and like when I was young I never did that but you know, I knew I rolled with the best of them, and I'm so ashamed right now that I never stopped them or said anything. And like for my dad to say that, and then all of a sudden he's going out and now he's an activist, you know? So it's like, you know, you ha- I feel like in terms of, you have to think about engaging the other half because we're on this earth with the other half, and it's not just about me going rah rah for me because I'm just me, no, it's like everybody. Feminism is about, you know, making it better for everyone, so. I think you just have to reach out and make those connections, and, and, um, intentionally, in ways that will attract and engage those the other half. Yeah.
0: I think you all refer to
5: some things that are visible and some things that are not visible, and also
0: the different work you do—dance, media, publishing, writing, blogging—are have many aspects of making things visible. I'm thinking.
5: What is it that you would like us to leave here being, having something
3: be more visible for us? And it also could be less visible.
0: When Sarah Palin, for example, was saying outrageous things, some people said, don't mention her name anymore. Just make that disappear. Um, on the other hand, in Occupy, in our movement, in the feminist GA and
3: the Fem Force, there's been a lot of action of making feminist issues more visible and
0: feminist interactions more interactive. So what, for you, would you like us to leave here with being more visible or maybe dropping? Thank you. Um, I'm not sure
4: this directly addresses visibility, but in terms of what I think you should leave with, and especially echoing the past, The answers that you guys gave. I think just starting conversations and trying to feel comfortable starting any kind of conversations, whether it's online through a blog or with whoever's sitting next to you, I think it's just so important. We often lament the issues in feminism and talk about why isn't this different, but then we kind of stay in our own echo chambers in a lot of ways. So I think that the biggest thing is really being brave enough to start conversations with people you might even know you'll disagree with.
3: Yeah, I was just going to piggyback and say that words are power, and so I can't tell you guys, you know, what should be visible or invisible for you, but whatever you do speak into existence does exist. The Sarah Palin um, example really resonated with me. If we don't say it, you know, if that's not someone whose values you align with, then, you know, be mute.
2: Yeah, I think it's important to say things that people are uncomfortable with because it really brings to light the fact that no one ever talks about it. And I remember being part of um, Women Who Occupying Wall Street and why it was created in the first place, and that they were they were being harassed, the women in, in the movement, and they felt that they needed a place, you know, where they could share views and have s- some sort of solidarity with other women. And from there, working with um, creating a feminist GA and then having one that I organized that was more geared towards people of color, it made the men more, I guess, amenable to being part of the conversation because they felt that they were being included. And so once we start having those conversations, things will hopefully start to change.
1: Hi. Thank you for speaking today. This talk has been wonderfully informative. I wanted to get everyone's opinion on whether or not you think the knowledge and debate of feminism Tends to be reserved for the educated elite, and if so, how do we better spread this knowledge and activism to both the high school level and to those who do not seek or are not able to receive higher education?
4: So I can speak to you. I'm reaching out to younger women, which is one of the main focuses of my blog, the F bomb, which I'm sorry to keep coming back to, but that is my main experience with <laughs> feminist activism. Um, essentially, I started the blog because I felt like when I first discovered feminism, a lot of it was in very academic terms. And I personally kind of tried to trudge through it, but I really longed for other peers to talk about it with, because I think that feminism often appears differently for us at a younger age than the types of theories that the major feminist texts talk about. And I think that the best way I found to do that is to really approach it through current events, through issues that young women are dealing with on a daily level. We talk a lot about body image on the F-bomb. We talk about, again, like different ad campaigns that we find offensive or interactions that we have at high school. It can, I really am a big believer in um, the fe- taking a feminist lens to the daily lived experiences of our lives. I don't think that every part of feminism has to be about theory, although it is important to infuse that when we can. But I think, it, again, just generally about starting conversations about our daily lives. Yeah. Um.
3: Earlier, Jessica, when you were reading the, uh, the review of the book you edited, and the in that comment, um, the person alluded to um, this idea that I know Bell Hooks talks about, which is exactly that. So talking in this academic jargon that then isolates the masses of the people. Um, and for me, when I created this stance work, it was like, That was the meeting ground. That was the common place. People communicate through movement. You see bodies. We have body language. Those are the the ways that anybody can understand things. And so that was my way. to get at these ideas without using the academic jargon. Now, that aside, I am a college graduate and, you know, I write and think theoretical things and I have those types of discussions. And so, for me, something that I've just been thinking about lately in sort of the trajectory of my trajectory of my work is marrying the literal activism by dancing with the theoretical. Um, because I have training in both of those places, and I can I can bridge those two things.
2: Um, I think it's important to begin the conversation in at a really young age. And um, Ileana Jimenez, who teaches high school uh, who teaches in high school, and um, she um, teaches feminism, and her students are so informed, and it makes me think I wish I was taught that at a young age because then I would have, be able to begin the conversation with other people, people you know in my age. And I think it's also important to use art within our activism, like with what Sydney does. And um, we, we've done street theater where we use the dialogic performances to elicit a reaction, to see what people think and what one would do if they were in a position where they were being oppressed. And so I think it would be good to, to use art more often in activism, because then it's something that people are interested in, and it's more interactive.
5: I kind of want to see if you can flesh this out a bit more um, outside of the bubble of education, because for me, I'm, I'm your sister, by the way, um, and growing up in the same household, um, you know, I, okay. <laughs> growing up in the same household, um, she and I are polar opposites. She's up here, and I'm, I'm just sitting here, and I've learned so much from her. And luckily for us in our home, well, the word feminism, I think Dior would agree, was never really used, we were taught those lessons every single day. So my question for all of you being young women, because it's so important for us to continue to teach, not only those that are, are you know, in front of us, but those that are younger than us, how would you um, kind of help the family, the home environment kind of teach these lessons? Because again, not everyone has a luxury or the beauty of having a classroom that teaches them what these things are. I mean, I didn't know what half of these things were until Dior taught me, because she went to Smith College. Um, so what would you say to women like yourselves um, who really don't know what this is and how they can kind of take that and bridge it to the home life because I think in a lot lot of ways when you're taught from a very young age what this is you don't question it later on women are equal and that's just all there is to it so maybe your thoughts on why we don't see it that way and what we can do in the home to kind of bridge those gaps Um, I'll just answer quickly
3: Um, I too you know, grew up in a home that was very feminist. and But if you ask my parents that now, they would say, what do you mean? <laughs> um, just the values that I was raised with. You know, I was raised, I didn't have any idea that I didn't have access to anything in the whole world. And, you know, we were a working class family. And I, I literally just watched my parents work for everything. And that in and of itself, um, you know, that, Combined with, you know, just this idea of possibility. My parents are just always about possibility. You can do anything. You can be anything. You can do like that was drilled in my head. And so those two things, um, I think, really just instilled in me, um, you know, sensibilities that would make me want to work to see change, um, quite simply. And and that was, you know, I still get that support from them even though I've flown the coop. So. Uh, I think it's important
2: to, um, when children are being raised, that I think that parents should let them know that they shouldn't have to adhere to certain gender roles, because I think that's where the problem begins. Because if they're taught that they have to be pretty, or if they have to wear pink, or or certain... Gender is performative, and I don't think that children should have to feel that they need to follow a certain role. And so I think that that would be one way to work with the family. so.
4: Yeah, and just to quickly basically echo everyone, I think that um, in terms of parenting, modeling the kind of behavior and the attitudes that you want your child to have are so important because I know in my own household, my parents never called themselves feminists, but for example, my mom always treated herself with a lot of self-love and always made really positive comments about her own body, and my dad was always very respectful to me, giving me a model for what I should look for in partners and just men in general. So I think just to echo that, I think that the models that parents set are very important.
1: So um, I do want to close with each of you giving a brief final statement. But before we do, um, those of you who had questions, I'm sorry we didn't get to all of them. But feel free to stick around and talk with the panelists after this. Um, and thank you so much for coming out. And thank you to our inspiring panelists. Um, I'll let you guys go down the line. and say your last words of the night?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, I don't know that I have um, last words other than it was a pleasure to be on this panel and learn from all of you guys. Um, And thank you guys for listening.
2: Um,
3: I just really enjoyed this conversation and meeting so many different
2: perspectives, like meeting so many different people and hearing the different perspectives. I think it taught me a lot today. And I'm really honored to be on this panel with all of you.
4: I also feel like I've learned so much just being on this panel. Um, Thank you to everyone. And just one final last remark, just please start conversations with other people, because I think that's the theme that really emerged, one of the themes, and I think it's really powerful.